Welcome to the Non-Anxious Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Shitama, author, teacher, speaker, and coach. I focus on your spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being to help you be the best leader possible. Each episode explores research and practical tips so you can be a non-anxious presence personally and professionally. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 215 of the Non-Anxious Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Shitama. Today's episode is the first segment from an interview I did on the Future Christian Podcast with Reverend Lauren Richmond. Lauren has shown an interest in family systems theory. In fact, he had me on his podcast back in 2020. I will put a link to his podcast in that particular episode in the show notes. He is ordained in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, but is now serving in a United Methodist Church, and he asked me to come on the podcast to talk about a family systems take on the current conflict within the United Methodist Church. This episode is a little longer than my typical episodes. It begins with Lauren doing his introduction, and I talk a little bit about my background, and then it goes to some background on how we got here as a denomination. So if you want to skip either of those, I'll put marks in the show notes as to where you can go to kind of hear what I am thinking in terms of a macro level family systems take on the United Methodist Church's denominational conflict. So without further ado, here is episode 215, What is Going On with the United Methodist Church? All right, welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined today by Jack Shatama. Jack, thanks so much for being here. Great to be here. Jack has actually been a guest before, but way back in my early days. So um, we'll kind of go through some similar questions. If folks are really dedicated listeners, they might have heard these before, but I wanted to share for folks who may not be familiar with you or perhaps forgot from way back in that episode. <laughs> Uh, but share a little bit about yourself, kind of about your faith journey, what that looked like in the past and what that looks like today. Sure. Uh, I didn't grow up in uh, a church-going family. Uh, my my parents are not Christians. Um, they were they are well. My dad passed away, but my you know, they were good, hardworking, secular, middle class people. And uh, it wasn't until uh, my latter part of my 20s that um, I really started searching spiritually. And I ran, ran into a couple of people who really got me thinking about Jesus uh, through their own testimony. And uh, it was through that that um, I prayed this prayer one day. This was kind of the beginning of my faith, I think, where I, I just prayed, Jesus, if you are who you say they say you are, show me. And, um, and he did, um, I actually went home and I said to my wife, I would think I want to start going to church and God was working on her. She said me too. She had grown up in the United Methodist church. Uh, We started going to the church in which we were married, her, her home church. And, uh, I, I, after about a year, I think I got into a Bible study and that's really what opened up my life and, uh, felt a call to ministry. I was baptized uh, in January of 1988, 
And um, I was in a pulpit serving as a United Methodist pastor in July of 1991. So it was like a whirlwind. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whirlwind for sure. Yeah. And then, as you you know, uh, family systems theory is a huge part of um, uh, what I like to share. It's kind of been my focus in terms of leadership development. And I encountered that in my first seminary, uh, seminary in 1991 and have been studying it ever since. Hmm. What uh, what would you say is different or more expanded about your faith versus you know thirty some years ago? Um, I think I think now uh, I've I've really learned to uh, live with uncertainty um, mm. in, in much more uh, a much healthier way I think uh, than I did thirty years ago. Um, I, what I've come to discover for myself is that that's really what faith is, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Faith is uh, trusting in God uh, to uh, lead the way and to provide the strength. Uh, One of of my favorite concepts in Christian theology is the understanding that we can do no good apart from the grace of God. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's our concept of free will. We we only have the free will to say no to God. Um, We can't even really say yes, but if, if we just open ourselves up to God, then it's God's grace that um, leads us, that guides us, that gives us what we need. And and then when we see good things happening, uh, especially in terms of uh, doing God's work in the world, uh, we get to give God the credit, give God the glory. So I think that's, that's kind of uh, how my faith has matured. Awesome. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, what are some spiritual practices that you'd recommend to others or have been meaningful for you? Uh, well, I, if certainly having a, a prayer life is is really critical, and I struggled with that off and on until uh, probably until about 2007, and, and I think that really coincided with uh, my youngest child being in high school. So uh, mornings mornings got were were not quite so hectic because. Uh, I, I would get up early. I could get up early and I didn't have a bunch of kids running around. So, uh, we have four children. They're all grown now, of course. But, uh, so having, I think having that prayer life where our focus, um, is on God is really important. Um, uh, one of the practices that's been really meaningful to me in the last few years has been just keeping a real brief, uh, gratitude journal, um, and, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a form of the Ignatius, uh, Ignatian examine, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you, usually you do that at the end of the day where you kind of reflect on the day and ask what, you know, uh, what you're grateful for and, um, what you learned and what you can do better, that type of thing. But, um, I've, I've, I do it first thing in the morning and uh, think about the previous day and I write down the names of the people that I encountered and, and, um, even the ones maybe that had difficult encounters, I feel like all of those are um, people to be grateful for. And uh, uh, there, you know, there's a lots of research that uh, w- people who express gratitude um, are happier, right? They, they, mm-hmm. um, it just, you know, I think it gives us a sense of grounding, and um, it starts first with gratitude uh, for God, but then um, gratitude for all of the other aspects of life, especially people. So I think that's, that's the one that's most meaningful to me these days. Yeah. Simple, but helpful for sure. Yeah. Those and basic... it, I was going to say, it only takes me, uh, I, you know, I spend maybe five minutes on it, five or 10 minutes on it. So, yeah. 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 Well, thanks for sharing that. I'm kind of doing this backwards, but, um, 
any other anything else you want to share about yourself that makes you you no i i think i'm just another guy really <laughs> so um, you know uh well and you probably know i um this isn't really um well, this is kind of plugging a book. I wrote a book on habit formation because I, for many years, I felt like I just was grinding at life. Mm-hmm. And and then it really started with starting a prayer life in 2007 where um, I, I started doing things out of habit, good things out of habit. Um, you know, first it was prayer, then it was exercise, and it was writing and and. Um, I wish I would have known that when I was younger. I, I don't know. I probably wouldn't have listened. Maybe somebody did try to tell me, but um, I think yeah. that, you know, learning that it's not so much about willpower and self-discipline. It's about being able to focus on developing the right kind of habits has been um, certainly um, almost as life-changing as uh, Jesus Christ has been for me. So, hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, I've I've been thinking a lot about your your tips about micro habits and micro goals, you know, trying to think of where's the micro goals I can start to get to my bigger goals. So that's helpful. Um, so I think, folks, uh, Jack has his own podcast, the non anxious leader podcast. Highly recommend it. I've been listening it, to it for some time. I don't even remember how I found it, uh, but it's all things, family systems, theory, leadership, um, habit formation, highly recommend it. He has a couple books, well, three books, I think, out, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the one I finished reading a few months ago, Anxious Church, Anxious People, How to Lead Change in an Age of Anxiety. Really, I think, I've read a lot of family systems theory books, Jack, and I really think this is one of like the best books of like just kind of laying it out in a simple, understandable way. So for listeners who are, who are trying to, you know, Get a, get an understanding. I would highly recommend it just as a as a primer um, primer for family systems theory. Um, but the reason I have uh, Jack on here is Jack serves in the United Methodist Church as a clergy person. I am fortunate enough to be serving in a UMC church now myself. And there's a, a lot of drama. I guess maybe that's the wrong <laughs> word. A lot of stuff happening. Yeah. Uh, nationally globally within the denomination and um jack has has shared some things and perspectives on his own podcast around the denomination and um, possible splitting and disruption so i thought it'd be interesting um to have you talk about that from a family systems perspective um but maybe before we dive into that i thought it might be helpful for listeners who are not familiar with what's going on in the umc Maybe talk about just the broader background and the backstory. Sure. Um, so I'll start in, I believe it's 1972, that my dates might not be quite accurate, but somewhere around that time, our general conference, which is our uh, legislative body that meets only once every four years, um, uh, passed uh, a part of its book of discipline and that says, which is our church law, uh, that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. And, uh, you know, so prior to that, there was nothing even in our church law. It was only uh, as uh, I think people became more aware of LGBTQ persons that, um, the, the, and probably not even the transgender, it's mainly, mainly just, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, 
LGBT, LGB yeah. <laughs> um, persons that um, the the church felt like they had to speak out, and that began um, four decades of um, uh, conflict. It wasn't as intense early on, uh, but as uh, as with our country, uh, as as progressives and conservatives uh, started to become more polarized, so our church did as well. And, uh, you know, this is not new to, to mainline Protestant Christianity. Uh, you know, the Episcopal Church, the United Church of Christ, uh, the Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian Church, they've all been through this already and and had um, denominational splits where uh, I'm pretty sure in every case uh, the progressive wing kept the name uh, of the of the denomination mm-hmm. and the conservative conservatives started a new denomination and and yeah. so this is we're just the last ones to do it uh we we thought there was supposed to be a general conference a special general conference in 2019 and we thought there was going to uh, be a way that we could live together in which uh we would come to an agreement that uh every church got to decide whether they would be willing to host same-sex weddings uh, so a church couldn't be forced to do it, but a church could be allowed to do it. Um, yeah. Every every pastor could decide whether they would uh, be willing to officiate a same-sex wedding. Uh, and each annual conference, which is uh, each of our jurisdic- uh, judicatories, like regions, um, uh, each of our regions would be able to decide whether they would ordain LGBTQ persons. So mm-hmm. um, we thought, you know, this is a way we could remain a big tent. Uh, right. It didn't happen. And in fact, mm-hmm. actually... Um, the, the traditional conservative wing actually um, gained a little bit of an up uh, uh, you know up some strength on that and mm-hmm. and so things actually moved in the opposite direction uh, there was a lot of turmoil from there and but then uh, a group of uh, I'm gonna say about a dozen people total maybe 16 uh, from each side total from each you know half from each side got together and uh, they were led by uh, the negotiator who administered the 9-11 Victims Fund. I, th- hmm. I, I want to say his name is Ken Feinberg, but I might be wrong about that. Um, anyway, uh, they came to an agreement about how we might amicably separate. And I won't mm-hmm. go into all the details, but the idea was that uh, we we were going to agree to disagree and uh, the United Methodist Church would remain a church uh, and be able to um, uh, eliminate the language uh, about uh, homosexuality being incompatible with Christian uh, teaching and that the conservative wing of the church would leave and form its own denomination called the Global Methodist Church. We were all really hopeful at that point in time, and that was going to be codified in the 2020 General Conference, uh, which was to happen in, um, I believe, September of 2020, but it might have been May. Anyway, we we know what happened in 2020. (laughs) There were going to be no gatherings like that. Uh, They pushed it off to 2021. They pushed it off again to 2022. And then they decided that really it was – it didn't make sense to do it. We would just meet again in 2024. Well, that created a lot of disruption and uncertainty. Uh, Churches that wanted to leave were getting – feeling anxious – Clergy and church members that wanted to leave were feeling anxious, and and the the coalition that had formed this kind of amicable separation broke down, 
And mm-hmm. and so now, uh, there, in the 2019 General Conference, there was a something that was passed called a disaffiliation clause where a church could leave the denomination and take their property with them uh, if they went through a certain process and paid a certain amount of their um, missional um, giving that they have to give to the denomination. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing a lot of churches uh, that are uh, going through this disaffiliate, disaffiliation process. Um, interestingly, uh, not all of them are going to the global Methodist church. Many of them are, right. are, are yeah. just, they just want out. They want out of the, the, the franchise, they want out from um, having to be a part of the bigger, bigger connectional church. And, yeah. and so that's what's kind of creating the chaos. I know that's a long answer, but... Um, no, that's helpful. Yeah. Um, so one quick thing. I had heard somewhere like on, a, like on a YouTube video about this topic that some the that window, so to speak, that you mentioned was closing mm-hmm. or would be closing soon. So church or... Or, or what was it? Maybe that it's kind of being forced closed. I can't remember. Uh, so it was passed as a temporary measure in 2019. And I, I, ironically, it was passed to give uh, progressive churches a chance to leave if they wanted. It was really passed with, with more tra- traditional conservative support. Mm-hmm. Um but it's been it, because of the change in circumstances. It's now the opposite. Uh, but yeah, that window is closing 2023. Um, they, they're they're going to have to uh, have made their decision, uh, which requires a two thirds vote of all their church members. Um, uh-huh. uh, the approval of the annual conference. They have to pay. Uh, it, it varies from. Uh, conference to conference because each conference gets to set the rules but on average a couple years worth of um, what we call apportionments which is our Mm -hmm. giving to the denomination uh, which can be pretty significant Um, yeah and that all has to be paid by the end of 2023 so the window yes is closing okay you know i think what it was is there was a conference that was basically saying we're not going to let anyone else out Mm, okay so i can't remember what that conference was anyway um, so a lot happening, and I don't want to get into like the nitty gritty of policies and procedures and stuff. What I want to hear uh, that I think at least would be helpful for me, and I'm hoping would help for our listeners, is kind of you've alluded to when I've been listening to some of your podcast episodes of like how you think this process has not been healthy from a family systems perspective. So I'd like to hear more from there. Sure, sure. Look, I'll go to the macro uh, first. Yeah. The bigger yeah. picture, um, because what this conflict it would be considered in family systems theory is a classic triangle. So mm. a triangle occurs when two people are uncomfortable with each other, their own yeah. relationship. Um, and so to avoid having to deal with that discomfort, they focus on a third person or issue. And, and so, you know, a, a classic triangle might be uh, in, a, in a couple, uh, one of the partners, they're uncomfortable with each other. And so one of the partner, partners just dives into their career, works a lot and focuses on that. That's kind of a way of avoiding the discomfort. And, mm-hmm. and then, so the other partner complains about, well, you're working too much. Oh, well, my boss says I have to. Um, how come you're not home early? Well, I had to do this. And, 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 and the focus is, is on the work, right? So they start arguing about the work instead of dealing with their own discomfort with right. each other. And so um, in, in the early 70s and into the 80s, as progressives and um, conservatives got more uncomfortable with each other, um, this became more and more a focus 
of their um, their discomfort with each other. And and I will say that this is in, you know in family systems theory. There's a um, there's this, this concept of things uh, of generational transmission, things getting passed from generation mm-hmm. to generation, and 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 at least in Christianity in the 20th and in the, in the United States, there have been a series of things like this, um, slavery, um, mm-hmm. back in the 19th century, uh, fundamentalism in the early 20th century, yeah. uh, that became focuses, uh, foci of, of, uh, uh of the conflict between progressives and conservatives. So, uh, this is something that, um, uh, you know, we just keep doing. And in my own denomination, not only do we have this history of, of, of these types of triangles, but we also have a history of schisms. We have a history of divorces. So uh, the first one uh, occurred back in 1816. It, it was related to race. And I, I don't think uh, th- this it's I don't think that's cons- uh coincidental and I'll, I'll tell you why but in a minute but um in a church in philadelphia uh, uh, st george's church uh, it, it used to be that um african-americans and anglos w- would worship together um but in 1816 they told the african-americans uh they had to sit in the balcony and richard allen who was actually w- one of the certified lay preachers in the church led a movement and and they walked out and they formed what is now the uh, african methodist episcopal church and okay um the uh, in, in 1821 the uh, the same thing happened at john street in new york african methodist episcopal zion church came out of that um we had the uh m- Methodist Protestant church that split away in 1830 because uh, they didn't want bishops. <laughs> uh, and so uh, their motto was a, a church without a, a country without a king and a church without bishops. <laughs> um, and, you know, so just on and on. And of course we split over slavery. Uh, and so it, it, uh, th- this is in our DNA. Schism is in our DNA. Uh, the other part about that, and this is the kind of the macro, uh, even more macro in our culture and our country. Um, Michael Kerr, who uh, was studying under uh, Murray Bowen, um, ha- has a theory that um, the United States, uh, part of uh, what has propelled it from its beginning uh, was that we always had a scapegoat. And yeah. uh, early on, yeah, you remember my podcast on that. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> early on, um, it it was uh, slaves and indigenous peoples, and and we could always focus on them uh, as the problem, the so-called yeah. problem. And uh, you know that that took us all the way up into the mid twentieth century. But the civil rights movement. Um, and you could say women also uh, were considered a scapegoat. So, but but this idea that uh, all of a sudden through civil rights and uh, women's rights uh, that uh, all people were equal, and and we really shouldn't oppress others and we shouldn't exploit others. Um, this this took away our scapegoat, uh, and. Uh, I don't know if it was Kerr or somebody else said what they really think it was a tipping point was uh, the one thing that held held us through that period was communism. We still could yeah. blame communism, but when the wall fell in I think or the early '90s, um, that was it. And and if you look at it since then, I mean, we've been fighting each other, right? right. <laughs> uh, because our political world is the same, and uh, e- even though we still some people 
still want to have like immigrants as scapegoats or uh, um, we're really using each other. We're focused on each other. And so uh, what, what do we do? We, in the, church uh we've triangled uh human sexuality at least on our denomination united methodist church as a way to um avoid other things one more thing in terms of the protestant church um protestant mainline churches have been declining since the 60s steadily and and so talk about denial this is this is a way to deny uh that perhaps uh, we got comfortable, we got complacent, we became middle-class people who cared more about ourselves instead of reaching out in the name of Jesus um, and trying to change um, oppressive systems in the name of Jesus. And so what happened was, uh, over time, we focused on that issue, and you might hear people say, well, you know, if we just got back to, to the basics and got back to the Bible and traditional values, we would, you know, we would flourish as a church. Or uh, if if we just you know, freed ourselves from these oppressive things and, and, um, became a more open church, uh, you know, we'll, we'll reach more people. Well, neither of those is really true. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I think you, you could do all the things that we need to do to reach people for Jesus and, uh, bring the reign of God into the world without dealing with that issue at all. So, Hmm. um, so you think it's in some ways an anxiety response to the decline, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, it it uh-huh. is, yeah. Um, and and you know, just as I think, um, the uh, our political division in the country is an anxiety response uh, to the shift away from. Um, you know, a, a system where some people are privileged uh, and we're trying to move to a system that's more egalitarian, even though we we still have a long way to go. That's it for the first part of my conversation with Reverend Lauren Richmond Jr. on his podcast, The Future Christian Podcast. The next segment will be next week, so stay tuned for that. Until then, you can find the show notes at thenonanxiousleader.com forward slash 215. You can sign up for my two for Tuesday at thenonanxiousleader.com, and you can always email me at jack at christian-leaders.com. Until next time. Thanks, and goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, there are two things you can do to help others find this podcast. First, tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. And second, leave a review. I appreciate your help. Finally, you can find more resources as well as subscribe to my blog at thenonanxiousleader.com. Now, go be yourself.